You are listening to the Prepared Warrior Podcast, where law enforcement and military trainers discuss cutting-edge training, tactics, and technology. Here is your host, John Wilson. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the Prepared Warrior. I'm John Wilson. Our guest for this episode is Philip Law. I like to start every episode with a quote. This one is from Heraclitus, who said, Out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. 80 are just targets, 9 are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one, one is a warrior, and he will bring the others back. All right, our guest for the show, Philip Law, was a law enforcement officer in Florida for 16 years. He has worked in patrol, street crimes, canine unit, drug enforcement unit, and DEA task force, as well as being a state certified instructor. After leaving law enforcement, he worked as a private security contractor for the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Department of Defense for five years in the Middle East. He was assigned to a combined Joint Special Operations Task Force as an explosive detection dog handler. Philip currently oversees the operations and training for the Special Operations Team's canine and emergency response teams for the third largest um, corrections agency in the United States. Thanks so much for coming on the Prepared Warrior podcast. Thank you, John. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, uh, before we get into it, I just... uh, you know the name Philip Law. Are you? Are, were you predestined to work in law? Is that? Uh, is that go down the family lineage? Or um, there is actually, and I've heard that a lot. There's not a. There's not a law. A lot of law enforcement officers in my, uh, in my direct family, um, but I like to think that I was destined to do it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's just uh, I guess um, coincidental. Lucky name, I guess. Yes, sir. Now, you have a diverse background from working private security overseas to being a law enforcement officer, you know, canine handler, drug enforcement, and and now overseeing training for ERT and canine for corrections. Is there a lot of overlap in terms of skills for the various assignments you've been working on? Uh, Yeah, I believe there is a a lot of overlap. I've seen a lot. And uh, I think the biggest thing has been a a progression of those skills uh, that has always prepared me for the next adventure. Uh, starting out as a, as a young law enforcement officer working, you know, in patrol at that point in my life, I was not, uh, prepared, didn't have the skills to, you know, do what I I did, uh, in future steps. So each step has kind of been a building block. It's taught me new skills, um, from, like I said, being a patrol deputy to ultimately now, uh, overseeing our special operations teams in the, uh, about a 24,000 member department. Um, so each step in there has just helped with the progression of skills and, and taught me the things that I needed to learn to be successful at the next level. So how did you first make that jump from operations to training? Um, was there a specific, uh, interest, uh, at the beginning or, or did you just, um, kind of fall into it? Well, like, like many people that became, uh, instructors, I initially became an instructor, uh, again, as a young deputy, because I wanted to be a firearms instructor because I thought that meant that I would get to shoot a lot more. Um, (laughs) And and as many have found, that is not necessarily the case. You're still going to have to invest your own time and and, uh, take your own time to do that shooting because you don't have time to do it when you're teaching. Um, So that's why I initially got into training. And then I became more passionate as my career went on. Um, 
and as I, I started, you know, saw a couple of, of, of my personal friends that were killed in the line of duty. And, um, you know, as that has, has progressed, I've become more and more passionate um, about training. And then, you know, the, the task that I had working overseas, there was a lot of people that really invested in me um, while I was over there that were teaching me, um, you know, how to do the job and how to do the job as safe as you possibly could with the most minimal exposure while still getting the job done. And, um, and, I, and I felt like because those people invested in me as time went on, that it now became an obligation of mine to take all of those skills that I had learned throughout my career and pour that into other people and, and anybody that would be willing to listen to me. And in my current position, um, actually over operations and training uh, for emergency operations and uh, canine. So I'm constantly mm -hmm. switching back and forth between the operational aspect and the training aspect. So there's times that I'm wearing BDUs and I'm, I'm running a special teams academy in the shoot house or on the range or, you know, and then the next day I'm wearing a coat and tie and I'm making decisions and determining procedure changes. Um, so, so it's a constant jumping back and forth between the operations and, and training. And I think the biggest difference between the two really are when you're out training, you're, you're focused on a very specific tactics, a very specific task in the realm of what you're teaching, um, very mission specific in that. And from the operations perspective, you have to be focused on an overall strategy, not just a simple tactic. Um, you know, how each decision when you're running operations, each decision and each moving part affects um, not only the accomplishment of that mission, but also the legal, the financial, uh, long-term effects of overall operations and the precedent that that sets for future operations. I see. So there's a lot of different, uh, you know, from from one specific task to overseeing uh, everyone's everyone's tasks. Would you say jumping um, from from those different things kind of keeps you up to date and on your toes uh, on all the different aspects of uh, of law enforcement, like operations and training? Um, absolutely. I, I would. Uh, I, I tell people all the time that I probably have the best job in our entire department. Um, simply because I still get to be active and, and setting training standards and um, really mentoring and, and helping new instructors and bringing in new instructors to our, our special teams. Um, but then I also get to have the operation side of things where I can actually make an impact through procedure changes and making presentations and recommendations to the, the higher-ups in the department. Um, so I, I am absolutely lucky to have the job that I have and um, – and and hope I, I keep doing it for quite some time. Has training changed or evolved? Would you say since um, you first began your career? Uh, absolutely. Um, I was first exposed to training. You know, when I went through the police academy, and uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but 1991, uh, I believe I went through the police academy. So. 27 years, uh, there's been a lot of progression in, in how we train, the topics that need to be trained. And I really think that there's been a couple of impacting factors on that that has, has really pushed training to the next level um, from a law enforcement and corrections perspective. And one of those was 9-11. Um, you know, 9-11 had a huge impact on training itself uh, for several reasons. Uh, I think, you know, part of that is... Uh, because people realized that the wolf was knocking on the door, so to speak, um, and that they needed to they needed to step their game up. And there's uh, new skills that need to be learned, and we have new threats that we have to deal with. 
And then you look at the current state of events that we're in right now where we have officers that are intentionally targeted and intentionally ambushed. Um, and, and, you know, I also think the availability of, of quality instructors, uh, the post 9-11 world, um, having the opportunity to, to be able to go train with people uh, that are subject matter experts in their field that have really that have seen uh, human reaction in a very high stress situations. There's a lot more of those people available today. Uh, and, and a lot of these people are after they work overseas, uh, for instance, they, they end up going to work for their de- for a department and they're able to bring some of that experience back to the department with them. So I think that's probably been the biggest things that have evolved training. Um, however, I do believe there are still some agencies out there that uh, feel as though training is just a necessary evil. Um, and it's just something that they have to check a box and they have to do. And, and I think we really need to focus on trying to change that because it's a, it's a disservice to the officers and it's, it's a, you know, a disservice to the community in general. How would you describe the the current state of law enforcement corrections training? Um, it sounds like you, you think there's room for improvement, and and some people maybe don't take it uh, as seriously as uh, as others. Um, yeah, I, I think the overall state of training, I think it's good. I think it's headed mm-hmm. in the right direction, um, and I think people are realizing the importance of that training and how it uh, has a direct impact on the officer. Um, you know, when I first got into law enforcement, for instance, it was as a law enforcement officer, the day you became a law enforcement officer, you were just supposed to be bigger and badder than everybody that you were dealing with. Uh, that was just the mentality. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's that's everybody's realizing that's not true anymore, um, that it, it does. It takes training and it takes uh, building up that skill set within those officers in order for them to um, accomplish their tasks successfully and, and safely. Um, and, but I do believe there's probably the one thing that I would say that we really need to focus on, um, as agencies across the country, and that's on the instructors. Um, you know, an agency can be, can have a phenomenal philosophy on training. Um, but the person that came up with that philosophy, whether it be a sheriff or a chief or a department head, they're not going to have a direct impact on every officer in that department and the training that they're going to receive. Um, they're going to get that impact from their instructors. Um, so where I think the agency's focus needs to be is really um, developing instructors um, and I, I would say, you know, we simply, many times we send people to an instructor class and that qualifies them under whatever jurisdiction uh, runs the training for their state or, or area that they're in. They go to the instructor class, they come back from it, and they're automatically, you're an instructor, go teach. Um, And and I think that if we look at it from a a perspective of our agencies, we've had FTO programs, uh, field training programs for for officers for quite some time, and they've evolved and they have gotten gotten really good and have some really good programs in place. And I think they're turning out professional and confident officers by the time they hit the hit the beat and it's time for them to do uh, their assigned task. I don't, however, see a lot of those types of programs for our instructors, um, almost like a field training program for instructors to give these instructors very clear expectations and then mentor them and coach them um, through the process of growing as an instructor. Um, 
and and I think that even even for seasoned instructors, for instance, a seasoned instructor who may be the 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 best instructor their department has. Um, first off, just because your instructor doesn't mean you know everything, um, and uh, and I think instructors need to realize that, and they need to go to other trainings with the specific task of learning how to be a good instructor. It may not necessarily be, it may be a, a class they're going to that they've already taught that class before. They understand uh, the process or the product inside and out. <clears throat> but they need to go to the class with the intention of learning how to be a better instructor. And even if, even if that it, they realize that that, they may disagree with that instructor. They may not, they may disagree with a specific tactic that that instructor is teaching. I was just myself this week. I went to a patrol rifle instructor class. I've been to multiple patrol rifle instructor classes, but I had the opportunity to go to one. So I went. Um, and what I realized was even if I may have looked at a very specific tactic and thought, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's the uh, best tactic to take back to my people. The way the tactic was presented and the presentation that the instructor gave taught me something. And it taught me that I can present my material the way they just presented that material um, and get through to my, my students better. Um, when I look at the class that I'm sitting around and I see as the instructor teaches this specific tactic and, and the presentation of that and how they went about doing it. And I saw the look on these people's faces where I knew they got it. I was like, okay, well, I just learned something there, the, that process. Um, so I, I think that's um, where we run into a problem, and I have seen, I've seen this time and time again, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners have probably seen it as well. Um, and it's a process of what I call institutional inbreeding. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a process where you have a subject matter expert who is really good at what they do, and they teach an instructor-level class. And then those instructors go out and they teach the exact same thing they were taught. Um, I think we all will, would probably agree that you can sit through a class with a very high-level expert instructor, and when you walk away from there, you're not walking away with 100% of what they taught you. You know, you're only, you're only picking up pieces of what they taught you. So as you go out and then you start teaching that specific topic, um, and then as time goes on, now you're the person that's teaching instructors. So you're teaching new instructors based on what you learned, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. And, and what happens over time is that specific topic or that technique starts getting watered down. Um, in, instead of, you know, you go to that class with that high-level instructor and you learn and, and you take everything you can and then you study it and then you practice it yourself and you become a subject matter expert on it. And then you look at this ever-evolving world that we have around us and, and new situations that are occurring and new tactics and techniques that are evolving constantly, new products that are coming out. And you continually incorporate that stuff into your training. Um, and that's how I think we, we continue to deliver high-level training. That's how we um, overall improve the state of our law enforcement and corrections training is, is for instructors to just really dive into it and really understand uh, that they have a huge obligation to the people that they're teaching, not just to regurgitate information. 
but to tr- really know what they're talking about. Um, and then the other thing that I see, John, is mm-hmm. we have a my philosophy when you look at the the new the new officers that we're hiring these days, the new officers that are coming into our academies these days, um, they don't necessarily think the way I thought when I went to the academy in 1991. They weren't necessarily raised the exact same way. Not saying that they're bad, just saying they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I've seen um, when I teach at different colleges that I teach at um, is some of the stuff that were that they lack the moment they sit down in the classroom is is critical thinking, understanding a chain of command, understanding respect and, and accountability. So I think as an instructor, if if I just go into the room and I teach them what's in the book, I have not addressed any of those shortcomings. So as a quality instructor, in my opinion, you should be able to stand up in front of the class and teach that information that's in the book that you're required to teach. But every question that comes up, every example that's given, you're constantly putting it back on the class and you're teaching those skills. You're teaching them to think instead of just giving them the answer and moving on to the next section of the book. Make them give you an answer. And then when they give you that answer, make them explain why they think that's the right answer and why that's the appropriate way to go about doing this. And then you you correct them or you praise them or whatever the case may be. But ultimately what that's doing is that's requiring them to make decisions. and then also at the same point in time, you teach the chain of command. Um, you teach respect for that chain of command and the, the reason for that chain of command. And, and then ultimately there's accountability for your actions. Um, so I, I think that's, that's probably one thing that we could make a huge impact on our training uh, currently is if instructors understood that going into it, that they're, they're not teaching the same um, learning styles that they taught 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It's a different learning style, and there's shortcomings there that we have to address. And whether your academy is seven weeks or 13 weeks or six months or a year, that's the amount of time that you have to give them some critical thinking skills, which in this business, whether you're on the street or whether you're in a facility working you know, as a correctional officer, critical thinking skills are massive, and, and you are going to use them many times a day, sometimes many times in an hour, Sometimes you may have to use critical thinking skills multiple times in a minute, you know, so mm-hmm. so teaching those critical thinking skills and how to think and and that whatever they come up with, there's going to be accountability for that. Um, not and, and we don't want to not encourage them to make a decision because there's accountability. We want them to encourage them to make the right decision and just simply be able to justify the decision that they made. I know I've been in situations throughout my career where I've, I've had to make decisions and I made the decision and it turned out it was the wrong decision. But I was able to sit down and justify my actions and justify why I made that decision. And, and you know, ultimately, even if there may have been some punishment that went along with it, it did, but I didn't lose the respect of my superiors and I didn't lose the respect of my, my uh, fellow staff members because I couldn't make a decision or because I made the, a bad decision and then try to cover that decision up. You, you, you use those critical thinking skills, make a decision, and then just be able to justify that decision. And I think if we could, if we could get instructors across the board to grasp that concept, um, I think we would, we would really improve our state of training um, 
around the globe. Yes, critical thinking, uh, yeah, one of the most important parts of the job. And um, also, I guess, being able to handle stress is a big thing. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier. One aspect of training, uh, would you say reality-based training is uh, an essential ingredient to effective training program, to a heightened stress uh, within training? So, you know, people up and coming have exposure to feelings in, in their body that they haven't maybe experienced in their life. I would say that if you were running a training program today and you were not encompassing reality-based training into that program, that you were failing. Um, reality-based training is, is, is a massive part of the training. Um, not only do the, the students through, through reality-based training, they get to build these schemas in their head of what an attack would look like, what it feels like in real life, what it smells like, what it tastes like. I mean, they, they really get to live it. Um, but what you also get to do through reality-based training is confirm that the initial training that you're doing is actually correct. Um, if I'm teaching a specific skill set from a fundamental aspect of a defensive tactics, so to speak, or firearm skills, and then I'm noticing in reality-based training, no one's able to duplicate that skill. Well, then that, that means that I'm not teaching it properly or I'm teaching the wrong thing. Um, so I think reality-based training, not only is it just a huge importance for the students that are going through the reality-based training, I think it's also important from, for a training program to be able to, you know, confirm what you're doing and confirm if it's correct and, and, and uh, whether you need to adapt it. Um, and then I also think, you know, many times when we talk about reality-based training, all people will, will focus on is the, the firearm skills or the defensive tactics skills. Um, you know, we use it for uh, tactical casualty care. Um, we use reality-based training, and we even incorporate report writing into our reality-based training. Um, meaning after we, we, as we go through our reality-based training, that, that training um, starts out small and it ends up with longer scenarios. Um, but after the scenario, that final scenario is over with, you know, we'll ask the student to sit down. We want you to write a report that describes the events that happened, what you saw, what the suspect did, what you as an officer did, and then justify that use of force. So we're, we're working on the, the report writing aspect of it. We're also going back to what I mentioned earlier. We're also focusing on that critical thinking skills and justification of your actions. Um, so, I think, like I said to, to begin with, if, if you're running a training program in any aspect and you're not incorporating reality-based training into it in some way, shape, or form, um, you need to catch up because you're behind right now. How much do you draw on your own personal experience uh, when designing a, a RBT scenario or um, kind of what other experiences would you maybe uh, draw from? I draw uh, quite a bit from my own experiences. Um, I call it fortunate. Um, many people may not, but I, I've been fortunate that I've experienced a lot of real world situations in many different environments and, uh, very austere conditions. Um, so I have a lot to draw from. Um, but I'm not only drawing and, and looking at that scenario and setting it up based on my successes. I'm also basing it on, um, when I reacted to a situation and I was wrong and I realized, you know what, my initial reaction to this scenario was wrong 
and I don't want people to duplicate that same thing. So we need to expose them to this and, and we need to teach them the appropriate way to respond in this situation. Um, but I also think it's important to draw from other ex people's experience as well. Um, and overall study human behavior. Um, I watch a lot of, uh, a lot of videos, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of body cam videos, dash cam videos, surveillance videos, um, and, and look for that human behavior of how did that person initially respond uh, when this threat was presented to them and, and build scenarios off of that. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there's, it's important for, for people when you're building a scenario to not just look at it of, you know, how did you react? You know, uh, how did Philip react in this specific event? Um, but look at the empirical data of um, physiology. What is the body naturally going to do in this, this position uh, that you're placed in? Um, and I think you have to take that into account. Uh, and, and then I also think you need to look at the level of class you're teaching as well as uh, what the expected skill level of the students are showing up. Um, if I'm doing scenario-based training for uh, my special teams people, um, an emergency response team, that I'm not going to run the exact same scenario if I'm teaching a basic recruit academy. Um, so even if it may be my personal experience that I drew it from, um, the outcome of that scenario may not necessarily be exactly what I did, even though it turned out okay for me, my level of training at the point in time in which that specific scenario happened may be a lot different than what the people I'm teaching is going to be. Um, so I, I try to draw on a lot of different things. Um, I try not to, it's not all about me, uh, but I definitely draw from the experiences that I've had, whether it's in patrol uh, uh, as a canine handler, um, working undercover, dealing, dealing with people undercover, whatever that experience was, I try to draw on them and, and duplicate them to an extent, understanding that um, the correct response to that scenario may not necessarily be what I did. Yeah, it's important to learn from, uh, you know, your successes and mistakes. Um, what would you say are some potential pitfalls um, when observing RBT scenarios and and um, maybe mistakes that uh, that you've realized things that don't work in in reality based training or or things that work best. Uh, I would say first and foremost is um, when we as instructors or as as role players um, allow our own egos to get involved in that scenario. Um, I have seen scenario based training where the bad guy um, refused to lose, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, I think you have to be a good, bad guy. Um, and I, and I think that's part of the training, you know, when we do reality based training, only our instructors are role players. We don't allow anybody from a class to come in and do a role player, or just some extra body that we can come across. Only our instructors are role players. Um, that is rehearsed. It is, it is, we know exactly how it's going to go. Uh, based on the student's reaction and and the role player knows uh, w exactly what their role is and their role is to induce stress um, and then also reward that role player for appropriate actions um, 
and then the other thing I look at is, um, you know, setting your students up for failure. That just can't happen. You, you can't just set them up for failure um, because nobody's learning anything and they're going to end up walking out of that, that class um, with no confidence in their abilities. And I think the last thing we want is to send an officer back out to their beat, um, lacking confidence in what they're capable of doing. Um, and then, and then I think it's a, there's a fine line between creating scenarios that take too long, too long to evolve. Um, if you walk into a scenario and it takes 30 minutes before anything actually happens, um, then you're just not maximizing your training time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think using some, uh, very quick scenarios is what, what I like to do, do some, do some really fast scenarios initially to get people through a lot of, uh, a lot of scenarios where it's, it's very fast evolving and, and then, uh, ends very quickly. Um, but then at the same point in time, I think there should be times in that scenario that we should allow it to play out. Not that it, we don't want to take a long time to evolve into it, but once it starts, um, let it play out. I've been in, in reality based training before where, as a student where once force was used, the scenario was over with. Um, and I think that's, that's fine for your flash type scenarios where it's really fast type stuff. But when you start getting into these others, and I think it's necessary to get into some of these others, um, to let it play out. Um, so the, the student that's, that's in the scenario, um, you know, whether it's calling for backup, calling for, uh, emergency rescue, uh, notifying a supervisor, um, and also allowing them to, and teaching them to deescalate themselves after the force has been used. Um, you know, deescalation is a, is a big hot topic uh, in, in our industry today. Um, and we see the, we see those times that an officer is, is, elevated their heart rate goes up all of a sudden they use force and then once the the resistance stops the force at that point does not stop and and i think part of that comes directly back to our reality-based training where we have to use that reality-based training to teach that officer how to de-escalate themselves and and to monitor that de-escalation during the training and be able to address it um then then we look at the um aspects of understanding that fundamental skills are not learned in reality-based training. Fundamental skills are learned, um, through a, through different processes doing, you know, starting out doing it very static, um, you know, step by step learning the process, uh, um, and then slowly evolving, um, into more dynamic, uh, type techniques and, and doing them, you know, at close to full speed or, or at full speed, depending on that specific tact that you're work, you're working on. Um, and, and a couple of the people I'll tell you, the couple of people that I, I have gone to their training and, um, instructor classes that I've gone to, and both of them have been uh, guests on your, on your show. And that was, uh, Kelly Keith and Tony Blower. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. been to both of them, uh, been to instructor level classes with both of those guys and they do an absolutely outstanding job at, at teaching the technique, teaching the fundamentals, um, from a static up to dynamic and, and rolling that into role player, uh, you know, reality based type training. 
Um, and I try to mimic a lot of the, the stuff that I do based on what I learned from them because I, I was, I thought they did an absolutely outstanding job at it. Um, and the other issue that I've seen and, and, and I'll probably stop it there is misusing training tools. Um, right. Yeah. Such as I, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of, um, the stress vest. Um, we, we use it with our agency, um, and we use it in a lot of our reality based training. Um, because it's, it doesn't, we're not limited by our environment. Um, you know, we, we can take that specific training tool and we can use it anywhere. Um, and when you allow a, a take a tool like that and you allow people to abuse it and, and let it become almost a child's game where it's all just about inflicting pain on each other. Um, I think that's a disservice, um, to the students. I think it's dangerous. And, uh, and, and you're not, again, you're not maximizing your training time. And that's something that, that I'm really big on is maximizing training time. Cause I think if we asked any, uh, officer, um, listening, do you get enough training? Their, their response is going to be, no, we don't get enough training. And I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Um, none, none of us get enough training. And, and in my opinion, there's no such thing as enough. Um, so allowing a, a, quality training tools such as, you know, the stress vest, the shock knife or, or whatever it is that we're using, allow it to become a, a child's game and not maximize your training time. And at the same point in time, build training scars through that, um, that a lot of people don't realize that they're building. Um, I, I think it's dangerous and, and I think it needs to, to really be focused on and, um, you know, and not tolerated. Right. And, uh, I mean, going on with with uh, advice for students, what what piece of advice uh, would you give to new law enforcement or correctional officers in relation to uh, officer safety training? I know you mentioned a few things about um, you know critical thinking skills and and not you know not wasting wasting your time or or abusing the items. But what else uh, would you say is a good advice for new new recruits? I would say if I had to give one piece of advice, and, and this is what I'm consistently telling uh, new officers when I speak to them, um, you need to get in shape and stay in shape. It's uh, You have to get in shape and stay in shape physically, but you also have to be in shape mentally, and you have to be in shape emotionally. Um, and, and I think that overall, just getting in stay, shape and staying in shape and understanding um, all aspects of your body and, and mental, physical, and emotional, where you're at, um, is really what it takes to have a, um, long productive career, um, and being able to come out of this career, um, you know, and, and be able to enjoy the rest of your life once that time comes through retirement or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's probably the one biggest piece of advice that I consistently give people. Um, is, is take care of yourself, uh, not just physically. And if you could give uh, one piece of advice to fellow officer safety trainers, uh, what uh, would that be? Uh, that, that would be easy. Check your ego at the door. It's not about you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That would be my, my biggest, and that's probably the biggest downfall that I have, I have run into with, with training is, is when egos get involved and there's just not room for it. It's not about you. All right. Well, uh, I think that's a, a great time to end it. I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to do this interview. Uh, uh, Philip Law, uh, you know, thanks so much. John, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. 
This has been the Prepared Warrior Podcast. For more info on our guests or other episodes, check out thepreparedwarrior.com. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the Prepared Warrior Podcast, email j-o-n at theprepared warrior.com. <laughs>